everybody. Welcome back to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander, and I'm your host today. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, very grateful and happy to be with you, especially as we discuss such important topics that are very relevant to our day and age. Of course, the end times, if you believe uh, in the historical fulfillment of prophecy, then every generation uh, has connected to the end times in one way or another. The, the prophecies were relevant to everybody, but I believe that especially, and of course, if you've been with me Throughout this series, I do believe, and I've said this many times, that we are in the generation of the Lord's return. I do believe that. I don't know when he will return, but I do believe that the writing is on the wall, and I'm not alone in that that feeling. So ultimately, to discuss the nature of what we can expect in this generation, the nature of what we can expect in terms of important things like the mark of the beast, who's the real Antichrist power on the earth? You know, all these very important things, what's the millennial kingdom all about? All these things that are discussed so popularly today, especially because people do know and they can feel it. They can feel that we are in those final moments. And again, I don't know when Christ will return. I don't think anybody does, obviously. People have tried to predict it since <laughs> since the beginning, but they've failed. And ultimately, we have been given signs to know that the end is near. Of course, we don't know when he will return, but we've been given signs to know and to be prepared. And this today is a very specific topic. It's a little bit off the beaten path, but nevertheless, it's very important. So a little bit of review, if you're just joining us, this is probably probably the last part of this series. I think I have one more just shorter episode to do, but pretty much this series is over. So if you are just checking in, um, make sure that you go back and you watch these episodes in order if you can, if you have seen some of these topics and you're pretty convinced about them or you you know you don't really care for them then ultimately make sure that you watch at least some of the topics on the time prophecies on things like mystery of babylon and the little horn and all these things that we talked about they're so critical cri- critical if i can get my words right uh critical to our understanding of what we're going to be talking about today because today is a very specific topic and if you haven't seen any of the episodes in this series or you're not too familiar with end times events or different perspectives on end times events, then today will just be a bit confusing. The rest of the series, I I can say pretty confidently that even though it's a cumulative series, the episodes themselves, excuse me, stand on their own to some degree. Even if you don't watch them in order, although I think you should, uh, they they can stand on their own, and I tried my best to do that because I realized, obviously, it's a series. People are going to click on it. People are going to come and, and watch it for various interests. Some people are more interested in the Antichrist or whatever than they are in, you know, whether God's promises to Abraham were fulfilled. And I think those are very interesting, equally interesting topics. But nonetheless, the point is this. Today's a very uh, specific topic. So make sure you check into some of the previous things, especially the last episode where we talked about time prophecies in the book of Daniel and Revelation. But a little bit of quick review, we, we outlined all those time prophecies like the 1260 years, the 1290 uh, years, the 1335 years, and the 2300 years. Now, all these prophecies are included in the 2300 year prophecy. Now, you notice I'm saying year and not day. Because we've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that the historical way to interpret prophecy, meaning where we substitute years for days, wherever there's a day mentioned in these visions specifically, I'm not saying anywhere in the Bible, I'm saying 
specifically in the book of Revelation and Daniel, when time prophecies are given, like 1260 days, do we read those literally or do we read them historically? And we prove beyond a shadow of a doubt why the historical way is the only way to read these prophecies. Futurism and preterism reads them literally. Futurism is all, everything happened in the future. It's happening in the future. doesn't concern us. Literal antichrist walking into a literal Jewish temple, that sort of thing. Seven-year tribulation, rapture sometimes, all that kind of stuff. Preterism, everything happened in the past. It's all about the Jews, the second temple. The Romans doesn't concern us. The Bible says don't swerve to the right or to the left. Many, many times. The devil's job, because he's a master of duality, is to push you either one way or another so that you don't walk the middle path. The narrow road, which is what Christ invited us to walk with him. And when it comes to Bible prophecy, these two extremes are what most people tend to believe. They don't believe the narrow road anymore. Ironically, because most Protestant reformers in fact, I believe all of them were historicists, meaning they looked at Bible prophecy as a historical fulfillment and fulfilling throughout history, and they rightly recognized who the true Antichrist power on the earth was. In fact, that's why the Counter-Reformation was started, why the Jesuits were created, and eventually the French Revolution, and all the things that we talked about in great detail that I highly encourage you to go check out if this is your first time here. If you're just checking in, you just clicked on this because you're interested, go check those things out. There, there's just a wealth of information there that I've put together from articles, historical you know, facts, current events, documentation, so much wonderful stuff that just isn't being talked about. That's really the case. And that's why I started this series, because most people aren't talking about these things. But we looked at how Daniel 70 weeks, the prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks proves that the historical way to understand these time prophecies is the key. So here's the million-dollar question. The million-dollar question is this. If we look at all these prophecies, and again, they all check out. The 1260 prophecy ended in 1798 when the Pope was arrested. So if you recall, 538 is when the little horn takes power, the papacy, basically. It rules for 1260 years, just like the Bible predicted. And then in 1798, 1260 years later, the Pope gets arrested by Berthier, which is was one of Napoleon's generals. They declare the papacy to be at an end. The papal states are confiscated. And there you go. But now, wait a minute. We know that John, in his vision of the first beast, saw that the beast received what seemed to be like a mortal wound. And remember, beasts are political kingdoms. They're political powers, really. So the beast received a mortal wound, and that happened in 1798 when the Pope was arrested and basically the papacy seemed like it came to an end. This, this empire, really, this power that ruled the world, the known world, for 1260 years, if you can imagine that. I mean, that's longer than any of the previous empires. It ruled for that long. And then it suddenly came to an end. It seemed like it did, at least. Of course, we realized that it didn't, and then... 131 years later, in 1929, the Lateran Pact was signed with Mussolini, and the Pope got his states back, and ever since then, the the wound is politically healed, but the wound will be spiritually healed, and we'll see that in the final iteration of this beast system, which John saw <clears throat> as Mystery Babylon. The woman, which is a church, writing a beast or political system, meaning the union of a church and state type of situation. 
So the 1260 prophecy, which is mentioned quite a bit of times, about six times, that checks out, you know, pretty, pretty well with history. We looked at that very in depth. Several episodes were spent on that. But then you have, again, these other prophecies like the 1290, the 1335, and then the 2300 year prophecy. And we looked at specifically the 1290 last time and also the, the 1335 a little bit. But the 1290, we looked at how that paralleled the prophecy that God gave Abraham for the Israelites being basically enslaved for 400 years. But then when the um, in Exodus, I forget the verse right now because I didn't have it prepared, but in Exodus when it says, when it's recounting the time that the Israelites spent in Egypt, it's saying that they lived there for 430 years. So is that a contradiction? Is 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 this contradicting what God said? Or is something else going on? And the, the answer is that something else is going on because God doesn't contradict himself. And what's going on is that time is being reckoned differently from two different perspectives. God gave Adam a prophecy, or um, Abraham, not Adam, a prophecy about the Israelites being enslaved for 400 years. And they were enslaved for 400 years. But when Exodus reports the time that people lived in Egypt, it's counting Abraham's sojourning of 25 years and then plus another five years for Isaac's birth until he got weaned. We looked at all that. So it all checks out. So the point is this, the 1260-year prophecy and the 1290-year prophecy, they all related. They all fall under that 2300-year prophecy. And again, if all this stuff is kind of like, you know, sounding like algebra to you, don't worry about it. Go back to the previous episode if you have not seen it. it. It really... It's not super complicated. It sounds complicated, but it's not. And again, don't forget, we have an end times prophetic timeline. It's a free resource for you. It's just like a graphical Google sheet with all the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, basically, you know, aligned up in a graphical timeline so that you can see how they all line up because it's really, truly profound. It's very interesting. So I I tried to put that together to help myself, really, and then ultimately for a free resource for anybody watching this series. So that'll be always in the description to these episodes, but go check that out. But the point is that the 1290 is reckoning the same period of time that the Little Horn was ruling, only it starts 30 years before. And we looked at how in history, 30 years years before 538 was 508. Now in 508, you had Clovis, who was a, a king of the Franks, and basically he started church state union stuff and you know, various laws and rules about the church. Basically, all these things started to get ready for the power, the little horn power, to take control. But again, these time periods weren't very important. They weren't mentioned in John. So they weren't super, we don't need to be dogmatic about them. So this is what brings me to today's point, which is the idea of what happens at the end of the 2300-year prophecy. Because the 1335 days... And the 2300 days, they basically end at 1843 and 1844. And so the question is, okay, what happens What, what happens at that time? What happens in 1844? And so Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists, and of course this is in the title of this episode, that's why I created it, and that's why this is the last episode, because it's a very niche-specific topic. But it is very important. And the reason it's important is this, because my Adventist friends are the only ones probably that are interpreting Bible prophecy correctly in the sense that they look at Bible prophecy historically. Adventists do a great job with this. They're very aware of the New World Order stuff. They're very aware of, you know, the the true Antichrist power on the earth. 
of how to interpret things using type and anti-type, typology, spiritual eyes. So they, they do really well with this. So because they do really well with this, and perhaps you may be an Adventist, perhaps you may have Adventist friends, perhaps you've run some across these videos that are very valuable because they show you the truth. They show you the truth of the papacy. They show you the truth of the abomination of desolation, of how to read Bible prophecy historically as compared to all these dispensationalist people on YouTube and TikTok and so on, or even just regular people who aren't dispensationalists, but they believe in a, you know, in a millennial kingdom that's future, which again has several problems with it. But Adventists are one of the main groups that are doing well in this, but there's a huge but here, huge asterisk. And this is why I decided to make this episode, because their conclusions on this specific topic are completely wrong. And I say that with as much love as I possibly can. I'm not, this episode is not, okay, so let's get a couple disclaimers here. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. I never was. I'm not against Seventh-day Adventists, just like I'm not against Catholics or even Mormons or anybody or Jehovah's Witnesses. I want everybody to come to the truth. And certain teachings, this is not like we're splitting hairs over you know, small theological points. As you'll see, and I hope that I'll be able to present well enough that the conclusions that Adventists come to and the conclusions they rely on from their prophet, who's not really a prophet, Ellen White, are contrary to the gospel. They really are. And so there's a lot of things that Adventists are getting tied up in and they're teaching other people incorrectly so again, it's like they're doing good on one side of the eschatological landscape, but then, you know, they, they, they lead, and I'm not saying they are meaning to lead people astray, but just like well-meaning Christians who are going on YouTube and talking about the rapture, you are leading people astray. Not that you are a deceiver, not that you intend to be, you are deceived. And I hope, again, I say that with love and I hope to present clear historical and biblical proof as to why that's the case today. So again, I'm not against Adventists. This is not designed to bash on any Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, you know, again, they get a lot of things right, but they're just very deceived about this one thing, and that's the investigative judgment. That's basically what they believe started in 1844 when the 2300-year prophecy came to an end. So today... You know, we're going to look at this belief. We're going to look at and see why it's unbiblical, why it's contradictory to the Bible. We're also going to see some possible alternative explanations that are completely rational, completely biblical, because obviously the historical way to interpret prophecy is the right way. But then the question is, if that's the case, what does it mean that this prophecy of the 2300 years ended in 1844? Or should there be something super specific in the first place that we're obsessing over, or maybe not. That's something that I want you to wrestle with a little bit as we get started. But my goal is to prevent you from being deceived. If you are an Adventist, if you're listening to this, or if you had Adventist family or friends, I want to lovingly help you realize that the investigative judgment is a deception. It truly is. And it's, it's just a false doctrine. And we're going to look at, again, alternative explanations for it, because there are plenty of things that are much more consistent with Scripture, and Adventists follow the Bible. They pride themselves on in being you know, as biblical as possible, and of course all of us try to be, but we have to 
listen to the testimony of the word and see what what does it say versus what maybe other people are saying, like Ellen White. Ellen White is not the word of God. Ellen White is a person. And we will see just how accurate as a prophet she has been. But nonetheless, those are my disclaimers. Now the question, let's just get right into it. What the question is, is what are the 2300 days? Well, again, that's a prophecy in the book of Daniel. If this is something new to you, then I highly recommend going back to the previous episode. But if you're an Adventist, you probably are very familiar with the 2300 days. So the question really is, what are the 2300 days allotted for? What are they allotted for? And if we look in Daniel 8, verses 13 to 14, where this prophecy uh, shows up, it says the following. You shall be blameless before, or sorry, this is uh, different. Here we go. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? Now, again, this is ESV, so in the in the King James, it'll say how concerning the daily, and we looked at that, the transgression that makes desolate, the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. It's a very interesting prophecy. Now again, off the bat, we know that this is not talking about any physical temple because the physical temple was destroyed about five, six, seven hundred years after Daniel. So the prophecy of the 2300 years is longer than that. Therefore, it's not talking about the physical temple. So preterism is false. And we've proved that over and over again. But what is it talking about? Well, so basically you had the daily for this time period. And we looked at what the daily was. It was basically the time. Now, there's different opinions on this. And I'm not being dogmatic. I think both apply, to be honest. But one side believes that basically the daily represents the continual. Remember, the word is continual. So the daily could represent this continual sequence of empires, pagan, you know, empires that were replaced by papal Rome, which was this basically counterfeit Christian kingdom. There's a counterfeit kingdom, basically. There's a physical copy or a counterfeit of something that's supposed to be spiritual. With a spiritual king, now you have a man that stands between the people of God and God. So you had this breaking of this continual succession of pagan empires with a new kind of power. That was the daily. Again, the daily daily doesn't even, it's not even really a good word for it. It's the, It should be called the continual, but that doesn't make any sense in English. But nonetheless, you also could interpret it, the continual as the ministry of Christ, and of course not his heavenly ministry, but the gospel basically. The, the gospel, because the the papal institution, the Catholic system, the institutionalization of religion into a physical kingdom, a physical church, a, a kingdom basically, has basically taken, has made the abomination of desolation. It's put the sanctuary into an empty spot where people don't even enter it anymore. We talked about this in the abomination of desolation episode. And again, all this stuff, Adventists are right in line with this stuff. So I don't think we disagree on any of these things, because ultimately, you know, we see eye to eye that the papacy, the institution of Christianity placed itself between man and God. The plan of salvation was displayed and portrayed and typified in the sanctuary. The sanctuary, both the temple that was later built and the sanctuary in the wilderness, all pointed to the plan of salvation. 
There was a laver that represented baptism. There was one door that people entered through. There were white linens around, right? So you entered, you were covered in white. You put your hand on the lamb. The lamb was sacrificed. Even the tabernacle and what's inside the tabernacle. All these things we looked at in great detail how they typify Christ and the, and the plan of salvation. So what it means when something becomes desolate, it means it becomes empty. Nobody's using it. And that's true. Catholicism as an institution made people go through its system to have a relationship with it rather than a relationship with Christ. So it made the sanctuary desolate. It was the abomination to turn something beautiful and spiritual into a physical counterfeit. That's an abomination that made the sanctuary desolate. It was the abomination of desolation. So that's happening during this 2300 year period. And then you also have the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. And that that's obviously persecution. So there's this vast time period of persecution. Now, again, the context of this is that Daniel didn't really understand, so he asked for more clarity. And all these other time periods were fit into this greater time period. And that's all painted on the uh, end times prophetic timeline. So we have an idea of what these 2300 days are for. And again, they're only really mentioned once. They're not mentioned in John. So that right away should be something significant to you as to, as to how dogmatic you should be about this time period. So keep that in mind. But again, we saw that pagan Rome fulfilled this, or um, papal Rome replaced pagan Rome, so this was fulfilled. Christ's gospel was replaced by this false materialistic works-based salvation of running the rat race of sacraments and you know changing times and laws and basically being in the church rather than and being in a relationship with Christ. You had the sanctuary, which is basically the gospel. That was made desolate. Nobody was having a relationship with the Bible or with the gospel. Nobody's going through the door, right? Christ said he's the door. What was he talking about? He's talking about the sanctuary. All these things were pointing to him. And of course, the believers were also trodden underfoot. You had the Crusades, the Inquisition, you had persecution, you had Sunday laws, all these things that we've talked about. All of this stuff has been fulfilled. And Adventists, again, they agree with all of this because, again, they do a great job of teaching these things. However, we get to 1844, and now we have a huge problem because the question is, well, what happened? What's the significance of 1844? And again, 2,300 years is only mentioned one time. It's not mentioned several times. It's not mentioned in John. So that alone should tell you as to how obsessed we need to be about this. But what happened is this. You had basically a group called the Millerites, and they were trying to predict Christ's return. And they predicted it to be in 1844. And you can look into all this. This is history. And it was basically, obviously that didn't happen. We're still here. There's still sin and death and, you know, more and more of it. And so it was called the Great Disappointment. So what happened was, as a result of basically owning up to that, Adventism was formed and evolved into this into this religion that basically also teaches investigative judgment, which is a particular belief around the final judgment and what Jesus is doing, right? So basically Jesus finished his atoning work in 1844 
again, I, I don't believe any of this stuff. I don't think it's true, but this is what it is. Jesus finished his atoning work in, in the heavenly sanctuary in 1844 and his beginning judgment, his beginning judgment, beginning with the Christians. And the investigative judgment is the idea that, you know, there's sort of this investigative period of time where Christians are on probation and, and you're fine. The verdict isn't final until Christ's return to the earth. And so the question is, is this biblical? Is this true? And of course, Adventists use a lot of scripture to argue for this position that Christ went into the heavenly sanctuary and he, he finally finished the atonement in 1844, as opposed to after the ascension, when he ascended, that there's an investigative judgment. And of course, God you know, has precedence for investigative judgments in the past, like with, with Adam, with Abel, you know, with Moses and the flood and all these different things. So we're going to look at all these points, which are very important. But right away, I want you to notice something, which is very important. And again, this, I speak to Adventists mostly here, but I think this is valid for everybody because again, Adventists do a great job with a lot of things. But if you get snared into one thing that's true, and then you're given something that isn't true, then that's a dangerous situation. But I want you to notice that throughout when they're looking at the abomination of desolation, when they're looking at these prophecies of the little horn, and it's talking about the sanctuary, they relate that to the sanctuary as in representative of the gospel, which it is. Absolutely it is. The physical before the spiritual. Remember, we looked at that. Type and anti-type. There's always a physical thing that God creates, <clears throat> and that thing is typified. It, it typifies something spiritual, Right? So notice how they're going from a sanctuary being consistent in, ter- in interpreting the sanctuary as a representation for the gospel. But then suddenly when it comes to the 2300-year prophecy and, you know, the sanctuary being trodden underfoot and all that stuff, now we're talking about a physical place again, but it's in heaven, a, a heavenly sanctuary. So I want you to notice that inconsistency. And especially Adventists, you have to realize that you can't do that because... We'll talk about this more and more, but Bible prophecy concerns things that happen in history, in the earth, not in heaven. There's not a single Bible prophecy that talks about things that happen in heaven. Visions show things that happen in heaven, but those are visions that are representative of things that are supposed to happen on earth. There's no Bible prophecy that's telling you this happened in heaven and then this is going to happen in heaven. It's talking about what's happening on earth. That's number one. Number two, you have to be consistent. You have to be consistent. If you're going to interpret the sanctuary as a picture of the physical sanctuary, as a picture for the plan of salvation, which the Catholic system basically set up itself as the abomination and made that sanctuary desolate and trotted over the sanctuary and over the saints. See how this works? You can't then go and say, well, now this particular thing is talking about the heavenly sanctuary where Christ you know, it took him 1,800 years to basically atone for mankind. I mean, we're going to get into it. And again, I, I I mean this with love. I really do. But there are some serious, very serious conclusions and things that are wrong with investigative judgment. It's a serious problem. There's a lot of people teaching it that are popular. And my goal is to speak against it. But there's six reasons why you want to reject the investigative judgment. And they are as follows. Number one is the atonement at the cross was complete investigative judgment teaches that it was incomplete. So that's a big one. The second one is talking about the transfer of sins 
and basically how the investigative judgment teaches the sins are transferred to the holy place. Then they're finally transferred to Satan because Satan is the scapegoat. And that was typified in the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament with the two goats, one for the Lord and one for Azazel or Azazel. That's talking about basically typifying Satan taking on the sins of the world. And, you know, he's the scapegoat. And that's, that's again, that's very contrary to the gospel. And we're going to look at that. Reason number three is the theme of probation. We talked a little bit about this, but it's this idea that you're under probation until the final judgment arrives. So you have no assurance of salvation as an Adventist. You don't. And that is completely contrary to the gospel, and I intend to prove that to you today. Because the fourth point of why you should reject it is the Bible teaches election and predestination. I know that's not a very popular topic, and a lot of people have a knee-jerk reaction to that, but we're going to look at that as well, and why that is so important, especially in this idea that God needs to investigate people that are already saved. And of course, the number five reason is the meaning of the sanctuary in Daniel's visions. What is the meaning of, of the sanctuary? What, what is that? We touched on that a little bit just now. And the final point is that the cross vindicated God's character, not investigative judgment. God does not need to do investigative judgment to vindicate his character. The cross did that, and scripture testifies of this. So again, this is not splitting hairs on theology. These aren't like minor things. These are some hills to die on because the conclusions that Seventh-day Adventism, courtesy of people like Ellen White, come to are contrary to the gospel. And they enslave you in certain ideas that are just, again, they move you towards a works-based, performance-based relationship with God. They make you ignore the truth of the gospel so you have no assurance of salvation. They make you think differently of God's character and you ignore just the precedent of all of history and prophecy and everything else. And again, Adventism, Adventism does a great job of looking at Bible prophecy. So it's really striking that this error still persists today, but it is what it is. Everybody has some error, and the goal is to constantly be seeking the truth. So, number one is the atonement was completed at the cross. Now, I want to look at a couple things from various sites. This is... Uh, I believe it's called the Berean Call, but it's a former Adventist. It's called From Ellen G. White to the Pure Light. It's from a former SDA writer. And this is an, ex- an excerpt. It reads as follows. The investigative judgment is a key distinctive doctrine of Seventh-day Adventism, largely because it was endorsed by Ellen White's claimed revelation. According to this doctrine, beginning on October 22, 1844, not at Christ's ascension, Christ entered the Holy of Holies in heaven, the great controversy that's page 362 to 373. It maintains that Christ transferred the record of believers' sins to the heavenly sanctuary, where sins that have been specifically confessed, that's an important point also, will be cleansed at the conclusion of the investigative judgment, Adventism Day of Atonement. On that day, unconfessed sins are not cleansed and remain to condemn the believer. Ellen White said, The blood of Christ, while it was to release the repentant sinner from the condemnation of the law, was not to cancel the sin. That's what Ellen White said. It would stand on record in the sanctuary until the final atonement. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 357. For the Adventist who holds this central pillar of Seventh-day Adventism, sins are not canceled or forgiven yet. Moreover, those sins forgotten and remaining unconfessed stand against the believer. 
it is little wonder so many Adventists have no genuine assurance of salvation, just what we talked about, until this supposed investigative judgment is finished. This doctrine certainly played a key role in my own lack of salvation assurance. So again, this is from a former Seventh-day Adventist. <clears throat> I don't know what they believe now, but apart from a gracious miracle of God, the Adventist Church cannot abandon this doctrine on biblical grounds because it would mean destroying Ellen White's prophetic status, which is true. You have to abandon this prophet who is not a prophet. Moreover, it would mean that her writings could no longer be used as an inspired, infallible interpreter of Scripture. The theological foundation of Seventh-day Adventism and its exclusive claims would collapse. Thank God his word provides a different and greater testimony. But when Christ appeared as high priest, this is from Hebrews 9, verse 11 through 12, and there's plenty of these verses, but this is one of them. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus, through his own blood, entered in the past tense, once for all, not in 1844, into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for those who trust in him. Other passages of scripture that caused me to reject the investigative judgment include the following. This is John 19, verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave his spirit. Christ's atonement was final and complete. The word translated finished here is actually the word telestai, a word that means paid in full. On the cross, Christ paid full, paid the full penalty of our sins. It was not a partial payment needing to be completed in 1844 to come along to continue it. If the Lord already knew his own when these passages were written in the first century AD, why was there a need to investigate believers starting in 1844? And we're going to get back to this crucial point, Adventists. Anybody else listening? If the Lord knew his own when these passages were written, and we'll look at a bunch of them, why was there a need to investigate believers starting in 1844? I will prove it to you that this is wrong. I will absolutely prove it to you. And unless you want to be dishonest with Scripture, ultimately, uh, it's pretty pretty conclusive evidence. To vindicate God in the eyes of his creation? Not likely. Since God's thoughts are higher than his creation, he does as he pleases, and he is not answerable to his creation. Amen to that. But this is a kind of, in a nutshell, what the investigative judgment believes. And so, you know, here's the the big problem with this, the first one, which we're talking about, which is the atonement was not completed. Ellen White taught and believed that the atonement basically needed another 1,800 years to be fully completed. So that is a blasphemous teaching. There's no other way to say it. I'm really sorry. And again, I, I say all the things in this episode with love, but certain things are hills to die on and certain things need to be sternly rebuked. Ellen White is not a prophet, and I will prove it to you today. But that's a little bit later. The point is that she taught that the atonement wasn't complete. And we see in Scripture over and over again that it is complete and it is finished. All the verses dealing with Christ's atonement, and there's plenty of them, I didn't really bother to collect all of them here today, but look them up. Look verses on the atonement and see what do they have to deal with. They have to deal with his death and his blood. There's nothing about a heavenly sanctuary, right? There's the passage in Hebrews that talks about after the ascension and he went into the holy place once and for all, 
And that was it. He's done. He's he's sitting at the right hand of God. He's ruling. And we'll get back to this, but this is another reason why I highly recommend you go back and look at the first episodes in this series that talk about the millennial kingdom. Adventists are premillennials, which is another thing that they're snared by. Because if you realize that the millennium is now, and it has to be now, there's no other explanation, then this whole idea of 1844 just crumbles to the ground for, for other reasons too. But that's one of them, is that the millennium is now. Christ is ruling. He's already ruling. He ascended. He did what he had to do in heaven. Then he sat down at the right hand of God, and he's ruling while his enemies are being put under his feet. But the sanctuary was a type for the gospel. And really what's happening is Adventists are taking it way too literally to force this prophecy because, again, they tried to predict the return of Christ. It didn't happen. And instead of owning that, they created a false theology around it to basically justify this thing, and they're hanging on to it. There's a lot of people that are hanging on to it, unfortunately. So you need to let it go. But again, John 19.30, it is finished to telestites, paid in full. What does that mean? That means it's done. There's no extra thing that needs to happen, let alone for 1,800 years. That's just crazy. That is crazy. Now again, look at Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away the sin by the sacrifice of himself. Everything that, that discusses Christ's atoning work, it's a one, one and done, once and for all. It's completed. It's paid in full. It's in the past tense. It's been done. And again, you know, he entered the sanctuary at the ascension. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. We looked at why Christ is king right now. We'll get into more of these topics a little bit later in this presentation, but Adventists are premillennials, and as a result, they don't realize that Jesus has to be king in order to also be priest. Priest and king happen at the same time. You cannot have, we proved this biblically, guys. Go look at, you know, there's, I believe, episode number three or four, or number two, I don't remember, it's one of the early ones. Is Jesus king right now or not? Or in the future, I believe, is the title. And the answer is that Jesus is king right now. He has to be king because he has to also be king and priest at the same time. If he is not king and he's not ruling, then we have no priesthood and there is definitely no gospel. There's no intercession and there's certainly no investigative judgment. Even though the investigative judgment is wrong, if it were right, you can't believe in investigative judgment and also be a premillennial. See my point? In order for Christ to be priest, he also has to be king at the same time. And we looked at that very biblically. I'm not going to do it today. Go back to that previous episode. But Christ ascended and everything happened at that point. His death atoned for all sins, for all time, willful, forgotten, future, past, whatever. If you believe that only confessed sins are forgiven and there's still this shadow of looming things that aren't forgiven and somehow you're going to be condemned for that, the Bible says that believers aren't condemned. It says that the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness. That it is the gift that God gave, not of our own works. And these things are predetermined and predestined. 
so that we would basically come into life and come to know who God is, not because of our own efforts, but because of God working through us. All these things are completely contradictory to what Adventism teaches about the investigative judgment. Because again, Adventism, as much as you pride yourself on being Protestants, and you are, you're probably more true Protestants than most Protestants today, because you celebrate the Sabbath on the correct day. But Adventism tends toward legalism. Now, Adventists will deny that. There's plenty of great quotes from great Adventist leaders and talk about grace. Look, I grew up Eastern Orthodox. My mom still sends me quotes from various monks, you know, on Mount Athos and, you know, various priests and stuff. And a lot of them actually have great quotes that you can't even distinguish whether they're Protestant or Eastern Orthodox. They talk about grace. They talk about personal relationship with Jesus. Absolutely. But does that mean that the official position and manifestation of the Eastern Orthodox religion is like all about grace? No. Eastern Orthodoxy is a religion, it's an institutionalized religion that tends towards legalism and works-based performance with Christ. In fact, the Confession of Docetheus, which is a response to the Reformation that the uh, patriarchs put together, I believe in the 16th, 1600s, admits that salvation is by works and grace. So that's the official position of the church. Now, Adventism came in eighteen late 1800s. It's a newer denomination, newer religion, but it tends toward legalism. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean just because you have quotes from representatives that talk about grace and it's all about grace, of course. But based on what you believe, you have no assurance of salvation. And the the fact that you take Ellen White's words seriously, equal to scripture, leads you to a performance-based relationship with Christ because you believe that you can lose your salvation as long as you believe you you can lose your salvation that you have no assurance that you don't know what the final verdict is that means you are working to maintain your salvation and you believe that you have to do it and not God and that is not consistent with the gospel so that's number one number two is that this whole idea of a scapegoat the transfer of sins Basically, that Jesus transfers to the holy place, then it's finally transferred to Satan. He's the scapegoat, and he's he's going to take the sins of the world and basically be destroyed. So, how is that in alignment with Scripture? Well, first, let's let's take a look at some things about that. And this is from the Ministry International Journal for Pastors. It's an article in Ministry Journal, and it's titled "The Scapegoat in the Writings of Ellen G. White." pretty neutral article just talks about how basically she believed this. The the identification and eschatological meaning of the scapegoat of Leviticus 16 has generated much discussion in academic circles. Within ancient Jewish tradition, the scapegoat was always seen as a demonic being. Not necessarily in the Bible. Remember, this is talking tradition. So we're talking about Talmud, Zohar, Kabbalah, you know, rabbis, all these other things. So take that with a grain of salt. Moving on. But since the post-apostolic period, many Christian expositors have tried to identify it with Christ and his sacrificial death. Seventh-day Adventists have stressed a clear distinction between the goats of Leviticus 16.8, considering the one, quote, for the Lord as a type of Christ, and the one for the scapegoat, in Hebrew it's Az-Azel, as representing Satan. Ellen G. White also expressed this view. O.R.L. Crossier's contribution. We're going to come back to Crossier because this is a very critical point for today. The Seventh-day Adventist understanding of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary and the final role of Satan as the eschatological scapegoat 
were largely shaped by the biblical interpretations presented in O.R.L. Crossier's article, The Law of Moses. Keep this guy's name in your forehead, Crossier. We're going to come back to him. Published in the Daystar Extra on February 7th, 1846. In his treatment of the scapegoat, Crossier presented eight major reasons why the scapegoat should be identified as Satan and argued that ignorance of the law and its meaning is the only possible origin that can be assigned for the opinion that the scapegoat was a type of Christ. So obviously very pro-Satan being the scapegoat, not Christ being the scapegoat. Crossier's view of Satan as the antitypical scapegoat were fully accepted by early Sabbatarian Adventists, and Crossier's arguments would be echoed consistently within Seventh-day Adventism uh, literature on the topic, including Ellen White's writings. Noteworthy, already in 1847, a word to the little flock came off the press with the following endorsing paragraph from her pen. Quote, The Lord showed me in a vision more than one year ago that Brother Crossier had the true light. Keep this also in mind. This is absolutely, we're going to come back to this. On the cleansing of the sanctuary, and that it will, and it was his will that Brother Crozier should write out the view which he gave us in the Daystar Extra. I feel fully authorized by the Lord to recommend that extra to every saint. Okay? By searching her published and unpublished writings, one can see that Ellen White continued to speak of Satan as the antitypical scapegoat. Ellen White's early statements. In the summer of 1849, Ellen White stated that the sins of confess of the stated that the sins confessed before the time of trouble will be placed on the scapegoat and borne away. On August 4th, 1850, she wrote a letter encouraging the Hastings family to pray much that their sins may be confessed upon the head of the scapegoat and borne away into the land of forgetfulness. So again, kind of legalist stuff. Is this this is what the Bible says you need to do? It doesn't say it, not at all. It says, repent of your unbelief of Jesus, come to Christ in faith, and place your trust in him. Neither of, the two ta- uh, neither of the two statements provide any significant clue as to the identification of the scapegoat. But a couple of months later, on October 23rd, 1850, she saw in a vision that after Jesus finishes his work in the heavenly sanctuary, again, she's seeing visions, but who are these visions from? Let's see what she saw. He will come to the door of the tabernacle or the door of the first apartment and confess the sins of Israel upon the head of the scapegoat, i.e. Satan, which again, <laughs> this is just absolutely nonsense, but... Then he will put on the garments of vengeance. Then the plagues come upon the wicked, and they do not come until Jesus puts on the garments of vengeance and take his, takes his seat upon the great white cloud. Then while the plagues are falling, the scapegoat is being led away. He makes a mighty struggle to escape, but he is held fast by the hand that bears him away. As Jesus passed through the holy place for the first apartment to the door to confess the sins of Israel on the scapegoat, an angel said the apartment is called the sanctuary. So all this stuff, again, none of this stuff is really written in the Bible anywhere, but these are Ellen White's visions. This statement clearly provides insights glimpses toward the identification of the scapegoat. Scapegoat, As Leviticus 16.8 distinguishes the goat for the Lord from the goat for the scapegoat, so did Ellen White distinguish Jesus from the eschatological scapegoat. The distinction becomes even more evident when she says that Jesus himself, as our true high priest, will confess the sins of God's people upon the head of the scapegoat, and that while the plagues are falling, the scapegoat is being led away. In addition, the scapegoat's mighty struggle to escape from this tragic exilic death avoids any identification of that goat with Christ. Even without mentioning Satan by name, it is more than evident that Ellen White had him in mind as the true scapegoat. 
1850, Sabbatarian Adventists already had a clear understanding of the scapegoat, which was never really challenged within the denomination. For more than 30 years, Ellen White had made no further mention of the scapegoat in her writings. Ellen White's later statements. In the 1880s and 1890s, Ellen White penned her strongest arguments about Satan as the eschatological scapegoat. In the 1884 edition of The Great Controversy, uh, one reads the following words. I, it was seen also that while the sin offering pointed to Christ as a sacrifice and the high priest represented Christ as a mediator, the scapegoat typified Satan, the author of sin, upon whom the sins of the truly penitent will finally be placed. When the high priest, by virtue of the blood of the sin offering, removed the sins from the sanctuary, he placed them upon the scapegoat. When Christ, by virtue of his own blood, removes the sins of the people from the heavenly sanctuary, at the close of his ministration, he will place them upon Satan, who, in the execution of judgment, must bear that final penalty. The scapegoat was sent away into a land not inhabited, never to come again into the congregation of Israel. So will Satan be forever banished from the presence of God and his people, and he will be blotted from the existence in the final destruction of sin and sinners. The 1888 revised and enlarged edition of the Great Controversy not only preserved in chapter, not only preserved the paragraph quoted above, but also added two more statements on the subject. In chapter 28, the investigative judgment, she says, As the priest, in removing the sins from the sanctuary, confessing upon the head of the scapegoat, so Christ will place all these sins upon Satan, the originator and instigator of sin. The scapegoat bearing the sins of Israel was sent away into a land not inhabited. So Satan bearing the guilt of all the sins which he has caused God's people to commit will be for a thousand years confined to the earth. Again, this is all tied to a premillennial understanding, which will then be desolate without inhabitant, and he will at last suffer the full penalty of sin in the fires that shall destroy all the wicked. Let's keep reading, and there's a little more before we comment. And again in chapter 41, Desolation of the Earth, Ellen White reinforces the same concept that as the scapegoat was sent away into the land not inhabited, so Satan will be banished to the desolate earth, an uninhabited and dreary wilderness. That's also very important. We're going to come back to that. These three statements were preserved with their original wordings in the 1911 revised edition of The Great Controversy, except the scapegoat with hyphen was replaced by scapegoat without hyphen. Similar concepts were expressed in 1890 in also her Patriarchs and Prophets. She argued that the sins, that since Satan is the originator of sin, the direct instigator of all sins that cause the death of Son of God, justice demands that Satan shall suffer the final punishment. From the statements quoted above, clearly Ellen White consistently identified Satan as the eschatological scapegoat. Yet there is one puzzling statement. Okay, so it talks about an unusual statement that they unearth where she kind of goes back on that thing and she believes that Christ is the scapegoat. But it's it's not it's not very clear if she even wrote that. It was found in her manuscripts and it's just a really weird piece of evidence. So I'm not really interested in covering it because the trend of her writings and her beliefs are that what? That Satan is the full, the ultimate scapegoat that basically bears the sins of mankind. And you saw also some other important things that Satan is going to be banished for a thousand years on a desolate earth while what? While people are in heaven, enjoying a millennial reign in a heavenly way with Christ in some way. But again, none of this stuff is in the Bible. Remember from the millennial, that's why I said go back to those millennial kingdom episodes. One of the key things that we looked at is that the word for millennium is actually chilioi. It's plural. It's thousands of years. It's not talking about a literal thousand year period. So Adventists are very wrong 
when it comes to their whole idea of like, okay, Satan's going to be there for a thousand years and then we're going to be in heaven. Well, that's not what the Bible says at all. This is a spiritual time period where between Christ is ascending and he's returning. It's a millennium. It's a long period of time, metaphorically long. It's not thousand years, it's thousands. It's plural. So that alone should kind of break the idea of a thousand year literal period. But there's other things too. We looked at, for example, Isaiah and even Old Testament and New Testament. Both of these things, both testaments testify to what? They they both testify to Jesus bearing the sins of the world. He is the one that bears the sins. Nobody else. To say that Satan bears the sins of the world is taking away from Christ's ministry, Christ's role, and ultimately making Satan the Savior, if you think about it. He's the one that bore the sins in in this concept, in this idea. But what does the Bible say? Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Later in verse 12, same chapter of Isaiah, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. This language is very specific because it does tie to the Old Testament sacrifices. He bore the sin of many. What does the New Testament have to say? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him sin to be, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the idea of propitiation, the idea of Jesus taking upon, taking sin upon his shoulders is integral to the gospel because he is the one, he is the scapegoat. He is the lamb. He's many things. And that's why you had so many different types and shadows in the Old Testament. Adventists are very good about this. So anything that detracts or adds to Christ's ministry that the Bible doesn't say, we have to be extremely careful with this. In this case, it's detracting from his ministry. It's saying that Christ wasn't one that bore our sins, despite the evidence that says to the contrary. But rather, it was Satan that's ultimately going to bear everybody's sins. Do you see how this is a satanic doctrine? And you'll see over and over again that Ellen White was being led by a false spirit. She wasn't getting visions from God for several reasons, because she's wrong about many things. And with Crozier, as you'll see, she was extremely wrong about God saying that he had the true light. And you'll see exactly why, straight from Crozier's mouth. But that's besides the point for right now. The point is that Adventists are very good at seeing typology in the Old Testament. And of course, you know that all the the uh, sacrifices, the guilt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, what was it about? It was about redemption, right? That, had, that Each one of these sacrifices had something to point to Christ in some way. There are so many things to describe what Christ does. That's why there were so many types and shadows so that he, when he came and fulfilled everything, you would understand You would understand the multidimensional aspects of his work and his personality and his character and his being and who he is. The guilt offering, there was a redemption needed, right? You had to redeem. So the guilt offering pointed to the redeeming work of of Christ on the cross. 
the sin offering, anybody who touches the sin offering would be made holy. So there was basically a holiness aspect to if you touch that offering, right? If you have a relationship with Christ, you're made holy, you're made righteous. There was also the peace offering. And that was all about fellowship. Of course, we have fellowship with one another and with God because of Christ. The grain offering, that relates to the bread of life. We looked at all these in the past. The burn offering, that was just basically pointing to the propitiation nature of Christ's sacrifice, meaning he's in our place. He's the propitiation for our sins. But the Day of Atonement, the two goats in the Day of Atonement also represented Christ. Now, I want to read something from another article, which is actually a very good article on this topic, and it's um, it's called it's called Christ Our Scapegoat. It's from a ChristianStudyLibrary.org, and let's take a look. The ceremony of the two goats has come to its reality and fulfillment in Christ. Both goats represent the work that Christ would do. The goat designed for the Lord and the goat designated scapegoat are to be found in Christ. Christ performed both tasks: the offering for sin and the carrying away of sin. This is so important. He had a multiple, there's multiple truths to what Christ is doing. You need multiple pictures. He, he did both jobs. When Christ suffered and died on the cross, he fulfilled what the goat for the Lord represented. He was sacrificed for the sins of the people as a propitiation. The goat with the scarlet red cloth tied around his throat was slain. Its blood was shed, which was then brought inside the most holy place, presented to God, while the body of the goat was taken out of the camp and burned with fire and totally consumed. Christ was slain, his blood was shed, and it is a precious substance sent forth from, hev- from heaven's most holy place as redemption, price, and cleansing agent for the sins of his people. Amen. Second point, God the Father laid the sins on Christ. What about the scapegoat laden with the sins of the people and taken into an uninhabited wilderness? This too has come to its fulfillment in Christ. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what we just read in Isaiah. Christ became the scapegoat when the Lord God laid on him the iniquity of us all. This became part of the parcel of what happened to Christ as he hung on the cross. He hung there laden with the sins of his people, burdened under the load of sin. This time it was not merely a high priest, but God himself who placed the sins of the people on Christ. At some stage in the trial and execution of Christ, God the Father came and with invisible hands laid the sins and iniquities of his people on Christ. Why were those sins and iniquities laid on Christ? In order that Christ would carry them away. Just as the scapegoat carried away the people's sins and iniquities into an uninhabited land, Christ carried away the sins and iniquities of his people. Those sins and iniquities will never be found again. Amen. Once Christ, the scapegoat, carried them away, they are gone for good. God will remember them no more. Hebrews 10, verse 17, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Again, does scripture say that God is investigating people just to make sure or to say that everything's been finished? It's been paid in full. God's not going to burden himself with remembering people's sins when he knows everything. He's not going to burden himself to remember people's sins after the atonement, after the sacrifice of his son. What a... What a it's just, again, look, I say this with, with love, but it's a blasphemous teaching to believe that there needs to be more work done, that the sins are being put on Satan instead of Christ. Do you see how these things are so insidious and they're packaged in a in a bow that appears good? And that's, that's the thing to really pay attention to. And again, Adventists are very good at typology. You recognize types and shadows. You're not like dispensationalists, but 
because of that, you should recognize that your investigative judgment is an error. Everything surrounding it is an error. This whole idea with, with the scapegoat is a way to paint multiple pictures of Christ. Christ's life is too complex to understand with one picture. Think about all the types in the, New, in the Old Testament that, that point to Christ. The bronze serpent, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, Adam, uh, Moses, David, the kings, the priests. I mean, there are literally dozens, if you've ever studied typology, probably one of my favorite topics I've ever studied and continue to study. There are dozens of types for Jesus in the Old Testament. Why? Because Jesus is the infinite, undescribable God. So he's giving us all these different pictures to reconcile. Oh, he's like this, but he's also like that. Right? Like the Son of Man. The word Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite word to use for himself. It appears, I think, like 80 times in the New Testament. And if you look at the context of it, most of the time it has a humble meaning to it. But he was also accused for blasphemy because of the Son of Man. He appropriated Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, verse 25, I believe, of the Son of Man to himself. And that's when the high priest tore his clothes, accused him of blasphemy, making himself equal to God. Why? Because the Son of Man also had a divine component, a God-like component. So the Son of Man is a complex term. So these things have complex meanings. They're types and shadows. For example, today Jews still stumble over the Messiah being both a conqueror and somebody who is a propitiation for sins. They still believe in Ben David and Ben Joseph. Do you see the, I hope you see the similarity here between this, this idea that the Jews have because they, they can't get over this idea that, well, our conqueror also has to die for our sins. That's humiliating. Who would, who would be a savior that would die for your sins? Right? They stumble over that because we talked about why. But Jews stumble over that. And so they have to split the, the Messiah into two people. You got a suffering one and you got a conquering one. Well, what if it's the same person? Same thing here, which is what Ellen White is doing. She can't reconcile the fact that, well, Christ was both. Both of these sacrifices paint a picture of Christ in a different way because Christ had multiple things that he was doing. He had a very complex and beautiful and interesting ministry that isn't described by one thing. So this is why this is an error. But here's another thing I want to read to you. It's the meaning of Azazel, because this is also a source of confusion. This is from Got Questions. Now, they're dispensationalists. I don't agree with them when it comes to end times events, but they, they do have some great articles that are very researched and, and biblically sound. So again, everything treated with a grain of salt. Christ is the complete atonement for our sins. In many ways, he embodies each aspect of the Day of Atonement. We are told that he is our great high priest. That's in Hebrews 4, 14. He's also the lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. Revelation 13, 8. As a sacrifice for our sins, he's also the scapegoat. That's in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, which we just read. Our sins were laid on Christ. He bore our sins just as the scapegoat bore the sins of the Israelites. Exactly. That's why the language of bearing the sins was so specifically used in Isaiah 53. And uh, Isaiah 53, verse 6, prophesies Christ's acceptance of the sin burden. Quote, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, this language that's sacrificial language. It's, re it's referring specifically to these sacrifices because the sacrifices are pointing to Christ. 
After the sins were laid on the scapegoat, it was considered unclean and driven into the wilderness. In essence, the goat was cast out. The same happened to Jesus. Did you know that? That he was crucified outside the city? He was despised and rejected by men. He poured out his life until death and was numbered with the transgressors. Why? Because he was crucified outside the city. Jesus embodied what the scapegoat represented, the removal of sins from the perpetrators. Look, everything that happened with Christ's life was typified in these sacrifices. He was crucified outside the city. On top of the shame of enduring everything he endured, he was crucified outside the city. This is perfect, perfectly in alignment with what these sacrifices and various rituals portrayed. So to say that the scapegoat represents Satan is a very serious error because, again, you're detracting from the ministry of Christ and ultimately you're saying that Satan is the propitiation. He's the one that the sins are being laid upon in the ultimate way. And of course, you know, if you aren't biblically sound, you will think that it's, oh, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, like Satan was the one who tempted everybody, so I guess he's the one responsible. But that's not the point. The point is that Christ took on those sins even though he was sinless. That's the point. Do you see how, do you you see, uh, look, here's, Maybe Adventists haven't realized this, but it's an incredibly important point. The whole reason we have righteousness imputed to us is because Christ, who is righteous and sinless, took took the sins of the world upon himself. Okay? Therefore, we can have imputed righteousness. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus, if we have faith in Christ. But if the sins are ultimately born by Satan, do you see the problem here? Satan is guilty. We're all guilty too. So then all that's left is justice. It doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't make any sense. Now, another thing is the name Azazel. Today we have mythologized this name quite a bit. Quite a bit and a lot of people don't even think that Azazel is a proper name. Some people do. So there's a lot of debate on this. But in Leviticus 16.8, if you actually read the original language, the word for scapegoat is Azazel. Azazel. It's, it's a series of words that basically means goat of departure or the goat that goes away, literally. So it's it's not necessarily a proper name. We have basically turned it into a proper name and say, oh, it's for a demon. Again, does that say, the does the Bible say anything about it? a demon named Azazel? It doesn't. It was Jewish tradition. Remember that Jesus rebuked Jewish tradition. He rebuked the Pharisees. He rebuked the rabbis. We've talked about this in other episodes too, how the rabbis have all kinds of theories that Adam was born androgynous and they, you know, they had the Kabbalah and the Zohar and all these Antichrist books, the Talmud. So the fact that Jewish tradition says, well, it was a demon, we should take that with a very you know, grain of salt approach, basically. So Azazel is not a proper name. Azazel just means the goat that goes away. And if you see that, then that's basically another nail in the coffin for this idea that the scapegoat is Satan. It just means the scapegoat that goes away. You have one goat that's sacrificed and one that goes away. Both of those things were, ty- were typing, 
typifying Christ's work. Christ was the propitiation for sins, who was sacrificed, and he was also sacrificed outside the city because he was removing the sins away from the people. It's really profound. It really is profound. In the city, what did you have? You had both Jews and Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles had their hand in killing him. So the city had both Jews and Gentiles. He was crucified outside the city. He was removing the sins away from both Jews and Gentiles. Really profound. And it just, again, it's consistent with Scripture. So to insist on a different understanding does not mean that the Holy Spirit is guiding you. First off, the Bible forbids offering anything to demons. Why would God instruct them to have, okay, one for me, but then one give, give one to the demons too. Do you see how that would make no sense? Just because Jewish tradition says that, which is steeped in superstition, mind you, means nothing. In fact, if anything, it means we shouldn't believe it. We should believe what the Bible says, that this is just a matter-of-fact statement. It's not Azazel, the lord of the underworld. It's Azazel, meaning the, the goat that goes away. So this is a very important thing to believe because ultimately... If you start to see the truth behind these things, you see how misguided Ellen White was in her understanding that the scapegoat is Satan, which is, it's totally not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. Now, the third theme, the third problem, the third reason to reject investigative judgment is this whole idea of the theme of probation. Now, we know that from her writings. They're, they're all over. I don't need to really even cite those. They're I'll cite some of you in my resources, but Ellen White teaches this idea that basically you're not really forgiven completely until there's this investigative judgment, there's a probationary period, so basically you don't have assurance of salvation. You don't really know. You know, you're not really forgiven completely upon repentance, and only the sins that you confessed are forgiven. So is this consistent? The question is this, is that consistent with the gospel? And is it consistent that God is investigating Christians and deciding their fate all this time and you have to wait to the final judgment to to hear the verdict? Is that consistent with the gospel? And of course, the answer is a resounding no. Absolutely not. It's not consistent. And here's a good reason. If God is omniscient and he knows everything, is he really investigating, or he does he really need to investigate situations to learn the truth about something? Now, Adventists believe this because fundamentally they are Arminian in their belief, in their philosophy. Arminianism is not monergistic. Now, if you've never heard any of these words, I'll break them down really quickly. Arminianism refers to a belief around salvation that emerged around the 1600s, shortly after the Reformation, by a guy named Jacobus Arminius, who basically taught that free will had more of a part to play in salvation. Very free will based, as opposed to Calvin, John Calvin, Calvinism. Now, Arminianism was declared a heresy by the Synod of Dort in 16-something, I forget the year exactly, but it was declared a heresy, and for very good reason. And yet, it is still very influential today. There's a lot I would say we're more Arminian today than ever because we are very westernized and Western culture is very individualistic. It's very much based on French Revolution values, on Enlightenment values that are very man-centered and they're very centered around this idea of independence, that we control our fate type of thing, which again is very contrary to the Bible and that's why predestination and, and all these things are very 
Uh, they give a knee-jerk reaction to most people. But the Bible is standing against these things, and for good reason, because Arminianism gives you no assurance of salvation. Yet the gospel, on the other hand, does. And here's a couple examples. Romans 8, verse 29 through 30. And again, Romans 8 and 9 really is a whole treatise on this for anybody wanting to learn more. But verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So who did he predestine to be conformed? Those whom he foreknew, meaning from knew from before, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So he's going to call you. He's going to give you the desire. He's going to open your eyes. And those whom he called, he also justified. So God is justifying you by, by this predestining act. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we will be glorified with Christ when he returns. Ephesians 1, verse 4 through 6. Spiritual blessings in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him. Is he talking about every person in the world? No, he's talking about those who God has chosen to reveal himself to. That he would that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, and with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Acts 4, verse 27 through 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The cross was predestined. Now, these are just a few verses. I could, in fact, I have a whole series on this stuff, and I plan on doing another one next year, but ultimately, predestination refutes probation for very many reasons. But prophecy, and Adventists are all about prophecy. You're this very prophetically oriented denomination, but prophecy means things are predestined. You cannot have all these prophecies that are exactly historically fulfilled and history is not predestined. Isaiah 46.10, God says that I declare the end from the beginning, right? God is omniscient. He knows everything that's going to happen. And because there's prophecy, there's predestination. If there's predestination, that means that God unconditionally chose certain people to reveal himself to, to save from eventual death, and the other ones he passed over, right? Because the Bible says that we are dead in our sins. Countless times it says this. Dead people, dead bodies cannot make choices. This is the whole point. Because if you believe that your faith is part God doing some work and then part you doing some work, then you inevitably take glory from God and you rob yourself of peace because again you have to maintain your salvation well it's by grace but you got to maintain it because you could lose it especially if there's a probation you might you know really lose it that's not the gospel people did not get martyred because they thought they were on probation people got martyred in the first and second centuries and all the years and hundreds of years that people have been martyred because they had faith that God would sustain them just like the Bible says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance with Christ that that's a strong it's not saying the holy spirit is there until you mess up the holy spirit is the guarantee 
the fact that you are born again and you've experienced life in Christ and you see Christ as the truth, genuinely, is your guarantee from God that he's going to preserve you. You will not be lost. Christ does not lose his sheep. So there's, look, I could go on about this so long, but Adventists don't have assurance of salvation. Prophecy means things are predestined. God being omniscient refutes this whole idea of investigative judgment and probation. There is no reason why God, there's, there's no way you can reconcile God being omniscient, meaning he knows everything, and still having to go through an investigative process to make sure that, you know, people are going to be saved or not. It doesn't make any sense. Remember also the parable of the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, the good fish, the bad fish, the wise and foolish virgins. It's always about what? It's always about two types of people, the redeemed and those who aren't redeemed. In this case, most of the time it's about false and genuine converts. But again, it's one has been chosen by God and the other has not. They're copycats or they're just the wicked. But the point is this, redemption is not our choice. It's not your choice to be saved. It's really not. And I know some people may really stumble against that. But the moment you take any ownership over this process, this wonderful thing called life that God has given you, and I'm talking about life in him, that's the moment that you start to stumble and you take away glory from God and you take peace away from yourself. But the moment you restore things to how they're supposed to be, this is, what does Ephesians 8, uh, 2, 8 through 9 say? This is a gift of God, not by of your work, so that no man may boast. It's God doing the work. And as soon as you surrender to that reality, we're still making choices. We still go through life moment and one, one moment at a time. But as soon as you surrender to that truth, you get peace again because you know that God cannot fail and he's going to preserve you. You trust that. And God gets the glory because if it wasn't for him showing you favor and irresistible grace, you would not be where you are today. Certainly nobody because we're all dead in sin. You aren't wounded in sin. You aren't mortally wounded in sin. You're not bleeding to death in sin. You're dead in sin. You are completely dead. And I was dead, and everybody who came to Christ was dead in sin until Christ opened their eyes. That's the whole point. And you miss that if you're an Arminian, because Arminianism drifts into a legalistic, performance-based relationship. Now, I'm not saying Arminians are that way, but it drifts that way. Look at Catholicism. For as much as you rag on the Pope, Adventists, and you should, because <laughs> he is the Antichrist power on the earth, you share the same view of salvation in some sense. You're both focused on free will and personal responsibility and personal choices, whereas the Bible is very much focused on God's choices and us embracing that choice through faith. We are to proclaim the gospel, and the people who God has chosen to receive it will receive it. There is complete assurance of God's plan coming to fruition. If it's not, if it's the other way around, and, and the linchpin is mankind's free will, think about what that means for God. God is unable to save practically most of the people in history because most of the people in history will be destroyed. They're not going to be saved. What does that say about God's work? It means that he wasn't able to save most of the people he created if that's what he truly wanted. But if it's not that way, and he wanted to save people he's chosen to save, Christ came into the world, 
atone for those people and everybody's going to be saved because the Holy Spirit has gone out into history and is doing the work. That is completely consistent, completely consistent with the Bible and completely consistent with who we know God to be as sovereign over everything and everything that he does. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't want things, but then, oh gosh, they don't happen because of that pesky free will. Are you kidding me? God is sovereign. And proof of that fact is prophecy, which you acknowledge. You acknowledge a historical understanding of prophecy. Now think critically. How can God have a a prophetic calendar, a a prophecy that fulfills itself historically, and there exists free will? You have to manipulate people's free will. Otherwise, if you let people choose, then you have to wait on people's choices for prophecy to be fulfilled. Do you see the, the glaring problem here? So I hope you do, because prophecy itself, never mind all the other things we talked about, negates and refutes this whole idea of probation, of investigative judgment. Now again, the million dollar question is this, why would God need to investigate those who he foreknew from the beginning of time? The Bible teaches election. The elect have been chosen by God and do not need to be investigated. There's no condemnation for the elect. The gospel is about having a relationship with Christ and that relationship gives you eternal security because God is doing the work. He doesn't do shoddy work and you can trust his word regardless of what happens with your own internal mood, with your own feeling of doubt and despair. God is doing the work. Look at people in history like Moses. Moses doubted God five times. He's famous for that. Did God respond to his free will and say, well, you know what? I guess you made a choice. Let me go find somebody else. Is that what God did? No. God did not let his own doubt, his own free will, his own choice impact God's purpose. Same with the prophets. Same with pretty much everybody in the Bible doubted God. If God had left things to free will, we would have never had the Bible. Nothing would have ever happened. But thank God that's not the case. Because what? Because the cross was predestined. If the cross was predestined, just like Acts 24, 27 says, then that means you had to have people who would crucify Christ be predestined. Those are the wicked. You also had to have people who would be with Christ and believe, meaning the believers would also were also predestined. Do you see how this works? Outward from the cross. The cross is the central thing in time, and everything works outward from there. It all makes so much sense. It really does. Even though it is completely contradictory to our modern, worldly, Western Enlightenment, French Revolution, you know, attitudes. Now, Adventists will use examples like Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Well, Abel's dead, but with Cain, to to support this idea of investigative judgment. Because basically God, you know, in this situation seemed like he was investigating. Okay, it is the way I think it is. And then I'm going to basically pass judgment. But these are very erroneous ideas. These are misinterpretations of what's going on in Scripture and what's being revealed in Scripture. Again, if you believe in an omniscient God, which you have to if you're a Christian, you you cannot believe in a God that's not omniscient. That's not the God of the Bible. God knows everything. Then God does not need to investigate anything because he is completely aware of everything that happens, every atom that's moving. So then what's the other explanation for these events where God basically, like, he asks Adam, like, where are you? Do you think, like, God doesn't know where Adam is? 
Or when he asked Cain, like, you know, what'd you do to your brother? Where's your brother? Do you think God didn't know? Or, or is something else going on here? Is there a different way to interpret these other than projecting our modern libertarian, free will, Western individualistic perspective onto these situations? And the answer is, of course, there's a way to interpret it, and that is that God is creating precedence, teaching, revealing precedence for his mercy, his character, his justice through these situations. All the situations in Genesis, like with, with Adam, uh, with Cain, all these types of things, he's showing a precedent for mercy. Of course he knew where Adam was. Of course he knew that Adam would sin. That's the whole point, to prove to you that without God inhabiting you with his Holy Spirit, that you would go down the way of death, just like Adam. You need to be controlled and inhabited by God because God is the one that is truly free. He's the one that's truly perfect. You need to be conformed to his image. But in order to have that context, we needed all of history so that God could have ample proof and show you through situation upon situation that this is the case. Otherwise, it's very easy to be deceived by the lie that Satan gave Eve. You are the master of your reality. Libertarian free will, you have, you have the freedom to choose what's good and evil. You can be the authority of your life. Do you see how this is all related? We live in this lie today. We've been living in it for thousands of years. Same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. God sending two angels to investigate doesn't mean he's not aware of what's going on. God is showing that he goes the extra mile to determine even if it's one person, he's going to go the extra mile. Remember how Abraham asked him before he went to Sodom? Like, he has this really bizarre dialogue with God, and you can see God's patience. And God allowed that and, and choreographed that so that you would see, wow, God is really patient. Do you see how this works? God is not responding to human history. God created a story, and by participating in that story, we understand who he is. God predetermined Abraham to ask him, question upon question upon question, as in like, well, okay, God, what about 50 people? Would you not destroy it for that? And God said, okay, yeah, for 50 people, I'm not going to destroy it. Well, what about for 45? What about for 40? What about for 30? What about for 20? What about for 10? And he goes through the list, and literally, it's, it's kind of like Abraham's being a little obnoxious, and yet God is entertaining it. And he does so, so that we who read and understand this event that actually happened, what do we understand? We understand that God is merciful and long-suffering so that when other people talk about God like the prophets and they say God is long-suffering, well, how do you know he's long-suffering? Well, yeah, he dealt with Moses. He dealt with Abraham. He entertained Gideon's request with the fleece. I mean, all these things are designed and choreographed to showcase God. That's what it's all about. The entire Bible is about him. And so God is not reacting to situations in real time like, uh-oh, oops, Adam and Eve sinned, uh, quick, let's get an animal, let's sacrifice, and there we go, now we're good. Oh, I guess we'll have to send a Messiah. That's not the God of the Bible. That is an open theist view of God, and truly it's the only consistent understanding of God if you are an Arminian, because there's no room for the sovereign God that the Bible teaches and also human libertarian free will. There just isn't. We have a will, we have an individualistic experience, we make choices. Well, I should say we experience choices. But things are predetermined. Things are predestined. 
And they have to be. And it's good news that they are because the one who predestined them predestined them for their highest possible outcome. So to fight against that is really fighting against your own sanity, if you ask me. But God already knows the future. If he knows the future, there is no need to investigate anybody or put anybody on probation. That's nonsense. Do you see the problem? And do you see how all of this is connected to a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of God because of Arminian philosophy? Adventists are Arminian. They believe in, in free will and personal responsibility. Of course, we have to have personal responsibility, but things are predestined. What did Paul say? Paul say that Paul said that he worked harder than anybody in any of the other apostles. And then what does he do immediately after that statement? Yet it was not I that worked, but the grace of God that worked through me. So there is this duality of, yes, I'm an individual in time and space. I have choices that I make and that I experience. I feel like I'm making plans. I'm doing things. And yet, looking in retrospect, everything is according to God's timing and God's plan. This is the mystery of life. And predestination does not exclude participation. You can participate in reality. And God wants us to participate. That's the whole point of this thing. He could have just come down and said, okay, worship me. But instead, he is creating this beautiful and elaborate story for us to participate in. But nevertheless, it is a story that's been written beforehand. So you have to understand this because it will lead you to the truth. Again, in Isaiah 46.10, I declare the end from the beginning. So you have to reconcile these things that teach that there's this period of probation and investigative judgment with the fact that the gospel teaches completely contradictory things to this. Or I should say these are contradictory to the gospel. Another example that's really simple is with David's three choices that he got from, um, in basically, in Second Samuel, it says that God incited David to number the people of Israel. But then in First Chronicles 21, it says that Satan incited David. So pretty much what we can deduce is that God allowed Satan to incite or tempt David into numbering the peoples of Israel, meaning like, almost like a, boastful type of like, ooh, yeah, like like you're numbering the money in your bank account and you're just like, you know, really obsessing over that. So that's that's kind of the sin that's talking about here. Now, what we don't know why exactly, most likely there was some something happening with Israel where they needed to be judged, obviously, because the ensuing context is that basically God gives David three choices. And this situation is, again, it's it's another example of this duality between, yes, we experience choices, but reality is predetermined for its best possible outcome to showcase and glorify God. And I want to give you this example because, again, it's profound. Now, God basically gave uh, David three choices. This is Second Samuel 24, verse 12. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your, in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what, what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time again, appointed time, 
And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. So this was a judgment that came on Israel. And again, it's kind of easy to just read this with our modern view and say, oh, well, obviously God is giving David choices. Then it's David's free will that's responding. And then God is saying, okay, well, I'm going to respond to your choice. That is the individualistic, Americanized, Western mindset, French Revolution way to read this passage. And it is completely wrong. This passage is not about David's choice. It is about God's mercy. And I can prove it to you. God gave, God, first off, David wrote about how God knit him in his mother's womb, how all of his steps were basically written before he was even born. So David believed these things. He believed in predestination. He believed in his sovereign God over all things. Of course, God made David that way. He made him a particular way. He knew the thing that David hated the most, which is what? Running from his enemies. That's what he was doing most of his life, running from his enemies. David hated, imagine the anxiety of being like, okay, how much am I going to be here before they come and try to kill me again? So that was the last thing that David wanted. So God gave him three choices. Look at the brilliance of this situation. God gave David three choices. One of them he knew that David was going to make. That was predetermined based on how he made David and the choice that God offered him. What does that leave? And he also knew that David would be humble enough to say, I know I don't want this, but let God choose because he's merciful. Do you see what's going on here? God created and orchestrated this event to reveal his mercy. Through David, David was participating in this. He made David participate. But through show and tell, basically, you understand, oh, okay, God is merciful. Why is he merciful? David chose the option that he was meant to choose. Don't I don't want to run for I don't want to be chased by my enemies. Okay, great. Now that leaves God with two choices. The ball's back back in God's court. Do you want three years of famine or three days of pestilence? Well, three years of famine would have killed hundreds of thousands of people. And David knows that. And He's relinquishing to God to make the choice. And of course, this was all orchestrated so that God w- God had to judge Israel. But he orchestrated this event so that you could see that his judgment was actually very merciful. Because according to the just way of doing things, he should have sent the famine and killed hundreds of thousands of people. But he's merciful, so he sent pestilence for three days and killed 70,000 people. Very big deal. So the way this works is very simple. The ball goes to David, but David then sets it up and then God comes in and hits a home run. Do you see how this works? How if you see it this way, your attention is on God and on God's mercy and on, wow, that's just so brilliant the way all this just was choreographed versus, oh, well, it's David's choice and God was in there too. Do you see the difference of perspective? So again, we cannot project our Western mindset of this free will obsession that we have into these old texts and believe that God is acting or responding to things the way that we act and respond to things. Remember even things like this, Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even the lot, which was a a die or whatever people would cast for, you know, the randomness, but there's no such thing as randomness. Every decision that comes from the lot is from who? It's from God. It's not from chance. It's from God. If God controls the lot, do you really think you have this libertarian free will that you can choose without influence? It's not true. 
And again, David's Psalm 139, where he says he's fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 14 through 16, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. What a beautiful, I just love these passages. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. That's an absolute statement. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Did David believe in libertarian free will? No, he didn't. He believed and completely surrendered to God. He knew that God was sovereign. Of course, God wants us to participate in life. He has parts for us to play. But nonetheless, they're predetermined, and they're predetermined for the best possible outcome. So there's nothing to object because they're predetermined for the best possible outcome. God has created a part for you to play, and you got to play that part. You have to take it on. But the reassurance is that God is working through you to help you play that part, to help you be conformed to the image of Christ, to help you be more like him. He's doing the work to make you more like him. It's all about God. And if we have a God-centric idea of the gospel, of salvation, of this whole thing that's going on in front of our eyes, we can see clearly. If we don't, we run into error, just like with Ellen White and all these other things we've been talking about. And remember also some of these statements too. These are very important. Matthew 8, verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and from west and recline at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were going to be in this future kingdom where you can come and recline with them and meet them, that means they've already, their fate has already been decided. Do you see the problem? How can there be an investigative judgment when Christ, 2,000 years ago, already determined that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were saved? No investigative judgment needed. They're already righteous. They're saved. So are they exceptions? And if so, why, did God, why was God inconsistent in that case? The answer is that God is not inconsistent. Again, we see these things in other places too. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 25 through 27. And for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. So this is, what does this mean? That means that they are going to be resurrected. It's a done deal. In, God, in God's mind, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are already saved. He's not investigating them. That's, that's nonsense to believe that he needs to investigate people that he's already deemed righteous. Now, we, as believers in Christ, are what? We're children of the promise. We are part of that promise. So if Abraham is resurrected, do the math. Look at, look at Luke 23, verse 43. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, Today you will be with Mary in paradise. Now, <laughs> Adventists, you should know this as well because you believe in an immortal soul. This comma is added. It's not in the original language. It's not, truly I say to you today, or it's truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise, meaning you will be with me in the resurrected eternal state. But this is the thief on the cross. Did, did, did Christ say, wait a minute, you're going to have to wait a little bit because I have to investigate everybody. No. And that should be hope for us. This is why the Bible gives you these specific situations so that you have hope. 
Jesus said to the thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise. That means that even if you come to Christ in your final five minutes of life, that you have hope that you will be resurrected, that you that you will see Christ and live, and you will not die. That's the hope of the gospel. Not five minutes before you die, well, believe in Jesus, but you know, make sure you make it through the investigative judgment. <laughs> Are you kidding me? It's absolute nonsense. The investigative judgment talks about probation, but we're already saved. We're already saved. And of course, Adventists reject election and predestination because you are Armenian. You've been fooled by this Armenian philosophy. And so you stumble here. You, you have to justify yourself somehow because you, you don't see what the gospel is trying to show you. So Adventists drop Armenian philosophy, embrace the truth of, of election, of predestination, which is what the Bible teaches, and embrace um, assurance of salvation as a result. When you see that God is doing the work through you and that you can trust in that work and he cannot fail and it is not up to you to do anything but rather respond and trust in him every single day, then you will have peace of mind because investigative judgment robs you from peace of mind. You're just running another rat race. It's just another religion. Drop premillennialism too. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but that's another thing you need to drop because Christ is king right now. And he's king and high priest. He's ruling. There is no future millennium. If there's no future millennium, let alone future millennium in heaven, the, the Bible says the earth was made to be inhabited. I believe that's in Jeremiah. I forget the exact verse, but the earth is made to be inhabited. All the verses talking about the eternal state talk about resurrection, physical, bodily resurrection. Just like Christ with glorified bodies. We're going to be living on the earth. What does Revelation say? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Does that mean, what does that say? Behold, the dwelling place of man is with God, as in we're moving up to heaven? No. God is coming down to earth. The invisible is becoming visible and uniting with his creations. It's a beautiful thing. But all these things point to a physical reality. So the whole idea, you see where I'm going with this? The whole idea of Satan being on this desolate earth because he's the scapegoat is total nonsense because first off, the millennium is not some future period of a thousand literal years. I've proven that. Go back and watch my millennial kingdom episodes if you're interested. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's no future physical millennial reign. Now, there may be a counterfeit because a lot of people believe in a future millennial reign, physical, where Christ has to rule on earth. So there definitely will be, there's a possibility for a counterfeit. I think that's the direction we're moving in. But it's not a thousand literal years. That's number one. And number two, it's on earth. We're not in heaven during those, well, I shouldn't say because I don't believe in a future millennial reign, but the eternal state, when Christ returns, he's coming to earth. Death is destroyed through the resurrection. That's the final enemy to be destroyed. Then he returns the kingdom to God the Father. What does that mean? The triune God is ruling through Jesus in his body and his glorified form on earth. And that's eternity. But there's no, we're not living in heaven. There's no this spiritual existence either between those time periods or after or any, any time during that. It's all a physical existence here on earth. So that means that Ellen White is wrong yet again 
about a thousand year period where Satan is kind of on this desolate earth. I mean, that's a fairy tale. These things are not in the Bible. They're being portrayed and painted with biblical passages, but they're, the passages are being taken out of context with poor exegesis. Now, the number, we have two more to go, and that's that Daniel is not, Daniel's vision of the sanctuary, what does it mean? And the whole thing about vindicating God's character. And these are, these are a little bit shorter. So number five is Daniel is not talking about the heavenly sanctuary. The heavenly sanctuary in Daniel's vision is not about, or I should say the sanctuary in Daniel's vision is not about the heavenly sanctuary. Because first off, that can't be trotted underfoot. How can a, how can a sanctuary, or I should say the sanctuary in heaven, be trotted underfoot? That makes no sense. So you can't mix metaphors here. Do you see the problem? Again, prophecy is concerned with things that happen on earth, not in heaven. There's not a single prophecy in the Bible that deals with things that happen in heaven. Everything has to do with things that happen on earth. And Adventists switch from understanding the sanctuary being a metaphor, a type for the plan of salvation, which it is. And the plan of salvation was trotted underfoot by the papacy, by the institutionalization of religion. It was made desolate by the institutionalization of religion. Of course, all these things apply. But then suddenly we switch over to this heavenly sanctuary thing because, again, you're forcing the text to meet something that didn't happen. They have to justify that time period somehow because otherwise it would collapse Adventism. Now, the question is this. Is there a sanctuary? That's in, is there a heavenly sanctuary? Of course, yes, there is. And there are visions of it, but the visions are also symbolic. When John sees certain visions of heaven or Isaiah or Ezekiel, he sees things in heaven, but then when they're prophetic with time periods and things like this, these are symbols. The sanctuary is a symbol. You can't say that it's a symbol and then it's also talking about something physically happening in heaven at the same time. Because again, heavenly sanctuary can't be trodden underfoot. The host is talking about a physical people. So when Daniel says the host and the sanctuary to be trodden underfoot, you are uniting two different categories of things. Do you see the problem? The host is talking about, obviously, the saints, the people, the believers being trodden underfoot. Why would the host people be combined with a heavenly sanctuary? It doesn't make any sense. It's the host and the plan of salvation, meaning the gospel. The thing that's happening on earth is being trodden underfoot. So you're mixing your messages and ultimately you have to be consistent. So again, another reason why investigative judgment is just wrong and unbiblical. But the first, the final, the sixth and the final reason is that the investigative judgment teaches that it has to vindicate God's character because he's investigating everyone. So there you go. He's, he's doing the right thing, just like he did with Adam. He's he investigating him, so he's not acting rashly. Well, first off, God is omniscient. He doesn't need to investigate anything. The only reason he choreographs these investigations is to reveal that he's merciful, that he is giving ample mercy and chance for people to repent. He is a long-suffering, humble in heart, easy yoke God. That's the point. So that when the Bible calls him long-suffering, steadfast love, patient, enduring, you understand why. Because you have all of these examples where he went through the trouble 
of choreographing them when he could have just said, okay, I'm here on earth, worship me for all of time. And yet he gave context so that we would learn and come to a fullness of belief and understanding. But Romans 3 verse 26 refutes this whole idea very quickly and very simply. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Boom. Proof that the cross is what vindicated God's character. The cross was predestined. And the reason it was predestined is because if it wasn't predestined, like all of reality, you can't have reality without being predestined, but that's a whole other can of worms. But the cross was predestined, which allowed God to be merciful in the Old Testament. All the times when people tested God, like Gideon, or doubted God, like Moses, or told him to find somebody else, or whatever else, God passed over those sins, okay? He passed over those former sins, and he allowed people to test him, to basically misbehave, and didn't punish them with death. To the point where, if God is a perfect judge, and he's perfectly just, the question is, is God serious about judgment? Is he serious about justice? His character had to be vindicated because there were many things that he passed over. Even though he enacted judgment, there were many things that he passed over. And so the cross was the vindicating thing. So you have absolutely no doubt that God is serious about sin. God commanded and predestined that the Son is crucified on behalf of our sins and and on behalf of the sins of the world, really, so that his character could be vindicated. All the times that he passed over things now were vindicated because the cross had been predestined. If it wasn't for the cross, God would have to punish every sin immediately with death and nobody would be left alive. So the cross is what vindicated God's character. He doesn't need an investigative judgment, let alone one that's going to take thousands of years. Now, I want to return back to Crozier because I told you to keep him in your mind and it's been a little while since we talked about him, but I want you to get a hold of this. Crozier renounced the 1844 shut door. Most Seventh-day Adventists today do not know about O.R.L. Crozier, much less how he formed the Sanctuary Doctrine and published it in the Daystar, February 7th, 1846. Ellen G. White hardly endorsed Crozier's meaning of the cleansing of the sanctuary. Of course, we read that quote. that She said that he had the true light, that God showed her in a vision that Crozier had a true light. What to look, what to look for in Crozier's refuting 1899, refuting 1899 statement that follows this note. Number one, Crozier repudiated his earlier beliefs on the shut door of the sanctuary and published its defects from 1847 to 1849. Number two, he makes it clear he was not the originator of the sanctuary shut door view and that credit goes to the William Miller who received this idea from others. Miller also rejected the shut door view. The reason Ellen G. White and others grasp Crozier's view is best described by Crozier himself. Quote, On account of our ignorance of the scriptures and my argument was more fully and more widely accepted than it needed than it deserved to be. So pay attention to that. This is so important. The last note is that Crozier points for rejecting his former views. Note, note Crozier's points for rejecting his former views. So basically, Crozier, the, the one who Ellen White said that the Lord showed me in a vision that he had the true light, 
concerning this this issue. Crozier, number one, didn't even get the idea. He admitted it wasn't even his idea. And then Miller said that, well, I, I got it from other people too. That's number one. Number two, he repudiated and denounced it as ignorance. He recanted on the idea. But Ellen White said, wait a minute, that the Lord showed her that he had the true vision on this topic. So put one and one together. Did the Lord actually show Ellen White the truth? And if so, why is there a contradiction? Or did Ellen White not receive the truth from the Lord? Did she receive a false vision? Well, Deuteronomy 18 tells us exactly what the answer is. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the Lord has not spoken? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, which is what Ellen White just did, just, I mean, it was 200 years ago, but nevertheless did, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him, in this case, her. Do not fear her. Do not consider her a authority, a prophet. She's a false prophet. And first off, you don't need prophets because the fullness of revelation of Scripture has been done by the Messiah. All of Scripture testified to Christ. The whole point was to lead up to Jesus. Once Jesus comes into history, into the picture, like, boom, that's it. Everything finally makes sense. And of course, with all the other things we have afterwards, like the letters, the, uh, the Acts, the book of Revelation, we have enough until the return of Christ. The fundamental idea that you need modern-day prophets that are hearing from God is fake news. There's no more pro- prophecy ended, prophets ended with John the Baptist, with, with the anointing and, of course, the succession of prophets and that whole system ended because ultimately Jesus was the, the culmination of that whole system. Right? He was the Messiah. He was the promise. How can you say that you need a prophet after the Messiah? It is total nonsense. You're basically saying the Holy Spirit can't help you interpret Scripture. And on top of that, you're saying that Jesus isn't in, is not sufficient enough in his revelation to, like the Bible is incomplete in somehow. The Word of God is incomplete. You need somebody today to tell you the Word of God. What's God's Word? Well, it's in the Bible. If you don't believe that, then you're not in alignment with Scripture because Scripture says that all Scripture is good and sound for teaching and reproof and edifying. So this is a major inconsistency again. You also have things like The White Lie, which was written by Walter T. Ray. And again, this is a book that's a little controversial, especially among Adventists, obviously, that's it's looked down upon. But It was basically, and you can find this on Amazon, it's called The White Lie, and it documents Ellen White's plagiarisms and how she copied a lot of things. Now, there's, there's, again, a lot of controversy about it, and I'm not here to say one thing, you know, too much on one way or another, but the point is that Ellen White has a lot of controversy around her, and I can give you some samples. Ultimately, there's a a lot of samples you can look at yourself, too, but this is from... uh, Mountain Cleft, it's basically a PDF you can look at. And again, if you're listening to this, you can check the resources in there. But th- there's a lot of samples that she, this guy compares, for example, to Octavius Winslow and Ellen G. White. 
And you can look them side by side. God was manifest in the flesh. He humbled himself. God was manifest in the, in the flesh. He humbled himself. Like there's a lot of things that are copied word for word. And of course, some words are changed. And there's a lot of this type of evidence. What is the point with this? The point is that there's a lot of controversy surrounding Ellen White with, you know, copying things, potentially plagiarizing things, taking other people's ideas, right? You saw even with this Crozier thing. Crozier said it wasn't even his idea. It was, it was the Miller, uh, Walter Miller's idea. And Miller said, well, you know, it's not even my idea. I got it from some other people. So it's a lot of questionable things surrounding this whole investigative judgment and, and around Ellen White. Now she said, what did she say? She said the Lord revealed to her that Crozier had the truth. Crozier denied his own teachings. Say they weren't, they, he said they weren't even his. He said they were ignorant. They were a result of ignorance of the scriptures, which is true. So then Ellen White did not hear from God. Therefore, Ellen White is not a prophet. She's a false prophet. She's also taught many contrary things to the gospel, as you clearly saw with things like Satan being the scapegoat, with the atonement not being complete at the cross, uh, the atonement not vindicating God's character, but the investigative judgment vindicating God's character. All these things are contrary to what the New Testament teaches. And she's also, of course, been accused and documented on plagiarism. So what does this all add up to, guys? I mean, look, you got to be honest. You got to be honest. This is this adds up to very bad news for the Adventist faith. Because Adventism has some good things, but it has some serious problems with this whole Ellen White investigative judgment thing. You do not need a prophet if you have the full revelation of scripture. So, conclusion is investigative judgment is not biblical. It's not. It's contrary to the gospel. It is a deceptive teaching with many, many problems, portrayed and purported by a person that is not a prophet, obviously, according to the definition of a prophet in the Bible. History proves that. And a person that taught many contrary things. Very strange person. But nonetheless, if the investigative judgment is not true, then what happened in 1844? That's the question we want to answer today. And that's the rest of our session here, which is basically looking at, okay, well, first and foremost, remember that the 2300-year prophecy is only mentioned once. It's not made a big deal of, like the 1260. The 1260-year prophecy is mentioned several times in both Daniel and John. This is the thing, the 1260, 1260, the trotting of the the saints, the abomination of desolation, the little horn power, the first beast, the two witnesses, the woman running away from the dragon, all like the Bible is really intent on telling you there's a very important period of time that's 1260 years in history that will help you identify who the real Antichrist power on the earth. That's the thing to really take to heart. So we know from previous episodes what happened. Well, around the 1840s, the sixth church ended, right? Now we're in the seventh church, the final church. We know the sixth seal opened up. The final event in the sixth seal was the meteor shower that was in 1833. That was around that time as well. We had the sixth trumpet, also ended in 1840 with the Oriental Crisis, where basically you had the Ottoman Empire that the time period, the 391 years after they sieged Byzantium, they had another 391 years to basically pass judgment on the papacy. You know, that was the whole point we talked about. The trumpets are judgment. 
And that period ended in 1840, which is, again, very interesting how these things all coincide with this period of time. So we know we're in the 11th hour. We know that unbelievers have been judged throughout the millennium, which is, again, from the ascension to the second coming of Christ. It's a spiritual kingdom with a spiritual king. It's a spiritual time period. We know that the final judgments happen with the bulls in the future. We know the final thr- the final throne judgment happens when Jesus returns. Seventh bull, seventh trumpet, seventh seal. All of them are in alignment. And, of course, everything happens in that time. There's no rapture. We talked about that. So judgment doesn't begin in 1844. It's been going on throughout time, throughout millennium. But of course, different... It, the, different kinds of judgments. Of course, the trumpets are about unbelievers. But God has been judging them throughout time. It will climax at the very end. So he's got different things for different time periods. There's no judgment of believers. There's no probation. There's no, you know, investigative judgment. That's nonsense. Because if you're elect and you have born again, God has saved you, then you will stay saved and there will be a Bema judgment where you will be given various rewards and who knows how it's going to go? It's not The Bible isn't specific about that. We will appear before Christ, but not to be condemned. And that's very important. We have eternal security. We are not under probation. Very, very important. But around or after 1840, you had many things that happened. And I think that can give us a clue as to the next phase after this 2300-year period, which is really the last phase of history, if you think about it. But around that time, you had, what, evolution, Latter-day Saints, Karl Marx, Meeting Angles. That was in 1844, actually, they started communism. Ouija boards became popular. Seventh-day Adventism with, with your teaching on investigative judgment. Jehovah's Witnesses. Helena Blavatsky with Theosophy. Theodore Herzl and Zionism. Uh, dispensationalism. Humanism. Atheism and the Enlightenment. Jesuits, the learning against learning. That led to the Big Bang Theory. NASA, Hollywood, New Age Movement. Today we have the hyper-charismatic movement, the prosperity gospel, progressive Christianity, all kinds of toxins and pollutions in pharmaceutical industry, health everywhere is under attack, especially in the last hundred years since the Flexner Report. Adventists know more about this than most Christians because they're very focused on health, which is important. But again, you miss the mark on this investigative judgment thing really hard, which is a shame for all the good that you, you do know eugenics, you know, pharmaceutical industry, social media, AI, gene editing, transhumanism, crypto. I mean, we're going crazy. This is really the final stage of history. And the big question is this, does that mean that Satan is released? And we looked at this. Remember that the millennial reign is a symbolical thing. It's a spiritual time period. It's not a future thousand year period. Adventists, you need to get rid of this idea. And come to the truth of a spiritual millennium. Because again, thousand is thousands in the original language. It's chilioi, it's plural. So it's not th- it's not talking about a literal thousand year period. And everything in Revelation is symbolic. So it's talking about a symbolic period of time. Because Adventists believe in a future physical, physical millennial reign or kingdom, they're tied to this investigative judgment because Satan's got to be, you know, we're going to be up there, Satan's going to be here for a thousand years and... It's just it's just nonsense. But if you believe that the earth was made to be inhabited, Isaiah 45, 18, that's what the Bible says. The earth was made to be inhabited. If you believe in the resurrection, if you believe that it's a physical bodily resurrection, 
if you believe that God's dwelling is with man, what does that mean? That God is coming down to earth. That's what the Bible's telling you. That's what the Bible's been leading up to. It's a full circle from Adam and Eve with God walking through the garden. Remember, God had a physical body. He was walking through the garden all the way full circle back to what? Paradise with God on earth. That's what this is about. But the reality is that we're in the, the end of the end, and that means that Satan is probably released. We looked at the binding of Satan, so go check that out. Again, some of these things are all in you know really in-depth topics, so if you haven't seen these, then go check them out because Satan was bound already. He was bound at the cross. It's a spiritual binding that prevented him from having spiritual power over people because death was no longer able to scare people into submission. Christ conquered death, and through that, we are no longer slaves to the world. The only reason you're a slave to the world is because you die. And so everything is centered around death and and making sure you live your best life now. But if your best life is actually in eternity, do you see how that trumps Satan's power over you? So Satan was bound, and, and he was thrown out of heaven. That was the war in Revelation 12. Go check out that episode. It'll be very enlightening for you. But the point is that Satan is probably released. We're, we see evidence of that. All the things I just listed, he was probably released. So we're in the 11th hour of the 11th hour. So a better explanation for this is that when 1844 came around and the 2300 years ended, basically it marks the final phase of time. The final phase of time where basically you have between the sixth and seventh thing, sixth and seventh seal, sixth and seventh trumpet, basically the, the, the sixth and seventh church, we're basically in the seventh church, you're in that final chunk of time. Up until that time, you had other things like the sanctuary being cleansed, and we'll talk about that. But the investigative judgment isn't biblical, and, and Ellen White is not a prophet because, as we've seen over and over again, she's wrong. She's just categorically wrong in her predictions and her, in her beliefs and the things that she said. Most likely, Satan is released, and he was released... Maybe in 1844, I don't know. It's, there's no point in being dogmatic about it, but it's obvious from the pattern of history where we are in history. The prophecies were unsealed, right? People would start learning more and more so they could be ready, and we're in that final stage, just like Daniel says. Remember, Daniel 12, verse 10 says that many will be purified. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So there's going to be many that are going to be, what? Made pure, tried by fire, martyred even, throughout this period of time of the sanctuary being cleansed. That was 2,300 years of time for this whole message to be cleansed, tried by fire, to be refined, all the way from the Jews who are carrying the Messiah through as that body of believers expanded into the church. Remember, the woman in Revelation 12 is the same before and after the Messiah. So dispensationalists are wrong. Anybody who believes that Israel still has a special role is also wrong because Israel had a role before Christ, but then after Christ, that body of believers was expanded. It's the same woman. But that woman had to be tried by fire, tried through persecution, through through being trotted on, and ultimately that period of time that was determined was 2,300 years. And you saw all those things happen in history. And most of that period of time was this beast ruling, this first beast basically ruling until 1798. 
ruled for almost 1,300 years. I mean, it's just crazy. But that beast stopped ruling, and then what happened? Well, a couple of years later, by the 1840s, you had revival. You had reform, you had Bible colleges, you had missionaries, you had all these things going on into the world for this final phase of time. So there's a lot of things that are intersecting. You had Satan being released. You had the trumpets, the seals, the churches, all kind of timing around those 1840s period of time. You had the, the first beast having its wound and then slowly healing. By 1840 also, there was a revival, right? So after the wound, there was atheism, the French Revolution. But then, you know, the word of God resurrected and you had basically the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. All these things happen in history. So you had a lot of things intersecting for this final showdown of what? Of the first beast coming back to power as Mystery Babylon. And that happened, that, be, that began, that journey began in 1798. When this dialect, we talked about this in the French Revolution episode, when the dialectic between left and right started to come into reality. Before that, it was just monarchies. But now you had this dialectic between left and right, atheism and nationalism, uh, secularism and Christian nationalism and religion. And we looked at all that through many, many episodes, how this is prepping the world for a Christian nationalist state and the return of the power that was ruling the earth for over a thousand years as a Christian nationalist system. That's coming back. And it's coming back because of the push from left to right. All this hardcore left stuff that's in your face, communist, globalist stuff, is by design. The last 150 years has been by design to push you from left into right, from the salute, from the problem of a communist, atheist, dark world order into the solution of a Christian nationalist, light world order. That's what's on the horizon. And if you think I'm crazy, please go back to episodes like The Image of the Beast, The Counterfeit Spirit, even the French Revolution episode, we saw very interesting stuff. And look, if you're Adventist, you'll agree with probably all of it, really. Because I think we see eye to eye on some of these things historically. But nonetheless, look, 2300 years is only mentioned once. It's only mentioned once. The 1260 time period is mentioned six times. At least, I believe. I think I counted right. But at least six times. Four in Revelation and two in Daniel. So that should tell you something. The 2300 years is not as significant, meaning we should not be as dogmatic about it. There are plenty of things that intersected around that time that prove that we're in the final stage. We're in the final church. We're right before the final trumpet and seal. Um, we're, you know, Satan's been released. We're on our way towards basically mystery Babylon. This is the final stage. Before that was a long stage of basically refining the gospel message, have, you know, doing all these other things happening throughout history, and now we're in the final stage. And this is very clearly so that all these things intersect pretty nicely. You can see on the end times timeline, they all really do intersect pretty nicely. But here's the deal. You don't need to be dogmatic about it. 1844 is not consequential, let alone something as, something as contrary to the gospel as investigative judgment. Adventists had a major disappointment with the Millerites trying to predict the return of Christ. And it, it, they never reposition from that. You have to be honest. You have to be honest. It doesn't discredit the historical interpretation of the Bible. It doesn't, you know, discredit anything that that is true in that regard because Adventists do a great job of that. But they try to anchor 
history in their particular church by giving themselves an importance that is undeserved as sort of the the church that is preaching the three angels' message. That's a whole other can of worms. What does Paul warn about preaching a different gospel? And ultimately, look, I, again, this is not to bash Adventists. I'm not accusing anybody. But we have to be very careful, especially as we specialize in different denominations. There was no denominations in the beginning. There was just following what Christ said, following the Bible, and that was it. The church was a decentralized reality. And now we have taken upon ourselves the, the identity of Mystery Babylon, even as Protestants, by having institutionalized denominations with their own teachings. And th- Do you see how, even though you're Protestant, you're still kind of paying homage to the beast in some sense because of this institutionalization of religion and being dogmatic about certain things. And of course, in this case, they were wrong, and so they can't admit being wrong, otherwise the whole thing would collapse. So now they're, they're going further into error, which is just, you know, it's, it's a problem. But they, investig- they invented the investigative judgment instead of seeing broader spiritual patterns, which is true. And the point is this. The point of today is to be less concerned with finding what specifically happened in 1844, because there's a lot of things that fit. To me, it's just, it is the end of that period of time that the sanctuary message of the gospel, the saints were being trodden underfoot, that was the end of the period of time, and this is now a new period of time from 1844 to the end. And as you saw, a lot of things opened up in the 1840s, a lot of evil things, because the Satan, I believe Satan was released. That's a mark that Satan has been released especially to do what? Why is Satan released? We looked at this. The purpose of Satan being released is to gather people for war against Christ. How is he going to do that? He's going to create a new world order. Shortly after the 1840s, you had the 1900s with, you know, the state of Israel, the two world wars, left versus right, communism, globalism, nationalism, all these different things, all these powers, they're all heading to a one world system. Satan is organizing people into a one-world system, and he will be successful. But he is now actively working and being released. That's clear from history. Look around. I mean, it's just, it's obvious. So don't obsess with what exactly happened. It's more important to see the patterns. Again, it's just like being obsessed with the exact timing of the trumpets or the seals. I mean, there are historical fulfillments, but again, we're not, don't be dogmatic about it. What the point is that we're right about 1260. That's the real battleground. Dispensationalists are teaching that this is a literal day thing where the future Antichrist, he's going to walk into a Jewish temple. That's the battleground. That's what Adventists should be focusing on. Not trying to defend their false theology. It's a false theology. And and look, here's my advice for Adventists before we close. Here's my advice. And take it or leave it. But you have to drop Arminian philosophy. It's philosophy. It's not theology. Arminianism is contrary to the gospel. It really is. And there are a lot of Arminians that I respect, but many of them are misguided and they come up with theologies and things that are very misleading. And most of the time they're inconsequential. So, you know, it is what it is. But in the case of Adventism, you're clinging to Arminian philosophy as opposed to embracing predestination and election and all these other things that the Bible teaches predisposes you to cling to a serious error, which is the investigative judgment. Because if we have free will, then God seems just in doing the investigative judgment.
But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God has chosen people to save, like we saw with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that he doesn't change his mind on. So this is contrary. So either you believe in Arminianism and then you believe this false doctrine, or you can let it go and see that you can embrace election and as a result, have eternal security in your salvation, which Adventists do not have. You cannot tell me that an Adventist has eternal security. And that's a shame because that's not the true gospel. Another thing is drop premillennialism. It's a deception. It's an illusion, especially with the, the version that Adventists have through an immortal soul where you're in heaven and Satan is on earth for a thousand literal years. I mean, this is a fairy tale. This is a fairy tale made up by a false prophet who you also need to drop because she's a false prophet. You don't need prophets in this day and age. Embrace the fullness of the revelation of Scripture through Christ and through other people like John's revelation and the letters and the acts of the apostles. We don't need prophets. You have the Holy Spirit and you have the Word of God. That is all you need. If you believe you need more than that, then you are doing a disservice to God and a disservice to Christ. You're doing a disservice to thousands of years of history that led up to Jesus. You're not seeing the momentousness of that and valuing it for what it is. So drop Arminianism. Drop premillennialism. It's a, it's a deception. The millennium is now king. Jesus is king right now, and he has to be because he's also priest. Drop your false prophet. Drop your belief in an immortal soul. Embrace the resurrection instead, because that's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't teach that we're floating in heaven or having these spiritual bodies for a thousand years. And if you realize that everything is about the resurrection and it's on earth, that's yet another nail in the coffin for this investigative judgment thing, with Satan being the scapegoat and thinking about his choices for a thousand years, which is nonsense. It's not what the Bible teaches. It really is nonsense. I hate to say it. I'm not trying to insult anybody, but it is nonsense. And of course, drop the investigative judgment. It is a lie. Ellen White was being deceived by spirits. You have to test the spirits, and she did not. Very clearly so. Those who are going to be saved by God will be saved. Nobody and nothing can stop that. Romans 8 and 9 alone, never mind the rest of the Bible, Romans 8 and 9 alone refute all of this business about the investigative judgment. It refutes all of it. And to say otherwise is really just not being honest. There are some great things that Adventists do. There really are. I consider them my brothers and sisters. They're Christians. They're biblical. Most of the things that they believe in are, you know, with the prophecy, they're very accurate on. They're aware of the New World Order stuff. They're aware of the Sabbath deception of Sunday. A lot of good things are coming out of our Adventism in the sense of prophecy. But you are very, very deceived by the things that I just listed. And I want you to have peace. I want you to have eternal security. I want you to have freedom. And I want you to not be deceived by this burdensome doctrine of the investigative judgment. It's a burdensome doctrine. So I know this has been a long one. If you're not Adventist, and hopefully you've learned something today. If you are Adventist, then I hope you've seen my heart with this, that I truly want you to be free from this false teaching and to have the freedom of the gospel, the true gospel in your life, which is that you have eternal security in your salvation because it's God that's doing the work to save you and to sustain you. So I hope this has been a blessing for you. If you've liked it, make sure you subscribe. This is the end of our end time series. Probably next week I'll do another short video on dispensationalism. Uh, but I hope you've learned 
quite a bit. It's been quite a journey for me too to learn all these things and to document myself on. Make sure you go watch those previous episodes. There are literally, I don't even know, maybe like 50 hours or more of content in this series that are well documented and with current events, with Bible uh, verses, with you know historical documents, historical records, all kinds of things to really educate you on the true end times happenings to, so that you're not deceived. There's so many theories and so many things. Again, some people will give you some truth and then some people will lead you inadvertently. Not that they're deceivers. Again, there's so many well-meaning Christians that are Christians. They're true Christians, but they believe in a rapture. They believe that Jesus is showing them dreams about the rapture and they're being deceived because they're not testing the spirits like Ellen White didn't test the spirits. So it matters that we have the truth and we share it in love and we help each other uh, so that we aren't deceived because what's coming on the horizon is something that will be extremely deceptive. It'll be Satan's last attempt. And I believe that's going to be a possible false Christ, a possible false millennial kingdom because everybody's expecting it. And if that's the case, how many will be deceived? So let us stay sharp. Let us stay in the word. Let us stay loving with one another. And let us stay and walk in the truth. Until next time, God bless. God bless.